0: You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 100. Hello, my beloved listeners, and welcome to the 100th episode of The Raven and the Writing Desk. With this episode, we come to the end of my second full year of producing this show. And what a year it's been! We're now averaging about 25,000 unique downloads every month, up from about 15,000 in the show's first year. More than 100 patrons are providing regular monthly support for the show through the Patreon campaign. I released Divine Intervention in paperback, and just this week, Things Unseen is finally available for purchase on Audible. It's been a productive year on the writing side, too. I wrote nearly a quarter of a million words in the last year, and have come very close to finishing my next big novel, The Lost and the Least. The manuscript now stands at nearly 167,000 words, which is a huge gain from where I was a year ago. So, to celebrate this 100th episode, I'm going to give you guys a preview of what's to come. This is a sneak peek at The Lost and the Least. I hope you enjoy it. The Lost and the Least A Novel of Metamore City Written and Read by Chris Lester Chapter 7 Thursday, May 17th Night was falling over the city when Callie and Will arrived at their destination. It was a fairly small, freestanding building on street level, tucked away in the shadows of the massive towers of Valley South Borough. Will had noticed gang-tags painted all around the neighborhood as they approached the building, but none covered its walls, nor did Will see any on the sidewalks around it. That alone was remarkable enough for a building of this sort, but even more impressively, the building itself seemed to be in remarkably good repair, with walls of brick down below and corrugated sheet metal higher up, small windows near the roof line and two large steel roll-up doors next to a single human-sized entrance. The feeble streetlights on the skyway overhead were drowned out by brilliant mercury-vapor lamps at the corners of the building, which cast all its surroundings in faintly eerie, greenish-white light. What is this place? Will asked. He looked up at the sign over the door, hand-lettered in paint on steel. Kenning Security Consulting This is my friend's home, Callie said, as she put down the parking skids and lowered her swoop to the pavement, and also his office. Will got off the swoop and followed Callie to what was apparently the front door. He glanced back at the swoop, then at the darkened roads disappearing into tunnels through the towers around them. Should we be worried about your swoop? He asked. Not here, Callie said confidently. No one messes with Silas. She pressed the call button on a security box by the door. After a moment, there was a beep. Then a deep, sonorous voice came from the speaker. Callie, who's that with you? The voice sounded suspicious. Hi, Silas, Callie said, with the bright, chipper tone she used when she wanted something from someone. This is my boyfriend, Will. Can we come in? Boyfriend. If anything, the voice sounded more suspicious. Yep. Callie said. I'll tell you all about it if you let us in. The intercom clicked, then fell silent. The silence stretched for ten seconds, then twenty, then thirty. Um, Will said. Just wait, Callie murmured through the clenched teeth of her smile. At fifty-five seconds, the door started buzzing. Callie raised her eyebrows at Will, twitched her head once in a look that said, I told you so, then pushed the door open. They entered a room shaped like a tall, narrow box, less than two meters square, but at least four meters high. More intensely bright lights bore down on them from the ceiling. Security cameras mounted midway up the walls rotated to examine them from all angles. There were other devices up there, too, whose purpose Will could not identify, though he guessed that they were probably sensors of some kind. From the steel plate floor to two meters up, the walls were lined with an array of regularly spaced round holes, each one about two centimeters in diameter. The holes were dark inside, and seemed to extend deep into the walls. Will's writer brain immediately conjured lurid images of unwanted visitors writhing on the floor as the mysterious Silas pumped in nerve gas, or chlorine, or even something as mundane as carbon monoxide— This room was made for killing people, he thought, and for once he didn't think his imagination was running away with him. The door shut behind them, and Will heard a set of electronic deadbolts slide into place. He looked around at the killing room, but there didn't seem to be any other doors. What's going on? he whispered to Callie. Callie didn't look worried. He's just scanning us, Looking for guns, recording devices, doppel charms, things like that. Oh. Will shifted his weight from one foot to the other. Does Silas, um, have a lot of enemies? Callie smiled tightly. Nope. Not anymore. Somewhere below them came a muffled metallic boom, like some massive bolt being drawn back and settling into place. It was followed by a grinding noise of large metal gears and the soft hiss of compressing pistons. A warning klaxon sounded, and at the far end of the room, the steel floor plates began to separate and sink downwards. A few seconds later, there was a staircase going down to a narrow hallway. The sounds of the machinery ceased, and a light at the foot of the stairs changed from red to green. Let's go, Callie said. Will followed her down the stairs. The hallway extended a long way before them, with at least three branching corridors that Will could see. Callie took them to the first intersection and turned left, taking them to a lift. It had palm and retina scanners and an electronic keypad. Callie used all three, and the doors of the lift slid open. This kinda seems like overkill, Will said as they entered the lift. Callie pushed the button for the top floor. It's a demonstrator model. Silas designed security systems, so this is his chance to show off all the options. Will nodded. How did you guys meet? When I was nine, I tried to steal from him, Callie said. We lived in the same apartment building back then. I was hungry, mom needed medicine, and people said he had money. She gave him a wry grin. Nobody told me about the tripwires he'd set up. Wow, what happened? Callie shrugged. He caught me. We talked. Instead of turning me in, he decided to hire me. I worked for him for the next seven years before I went out on my own. She looked down at the floor, and her smile was something small, quiet, and tender. He saved my life. The lift chimed, and the door slid open. They stepped out into a broad loft area, almost as large as Will's studio apartment. The first thing Will noticed was a wash of white noise, ventilation systems blowing, machines humming fans whirring. Most of the noise seemed to be coming not from the loft itself, but from the large warehouse space it overlooked. A railing covered with glass panels marked the far end of the loft, about ten meters ahead of them. In the space beyond, Will saw a vast array of flashing LED lights. He walked to the railing and looked down. The vast warehouse floor below was filled with computers, huge black-and-white server cabinets, each one a meter wide and at least two meters high. They were arranged into clusters of eight cabinets each, with narrow walkways around them, and Will counted eight clusters just in the part of the warehouse he could see. Will wasn't a tech-head himself, but he'd done some research on server farms for a story he wrote a few years ago. He knew that each of those cabinets could hold more than a thousand server blades, each one a separate computer in its own right. The amount of computing power in this one building was simply staggering. Why Silas would ever need that kind of power, Will could not begin to guess. He turned and took in the other details of the loft. A computer workstation sat on a desk in front of the balcony, with four widescreen monitors showing readouts of multicolored text on a black background. Two of the screens looked like they were monitoring the status of the server cabinets in the room below keeping track of physical parameters like temperature and power usage. The other two screens were incomprehensible to Will. At the back of the loft, to the left of the lift from his current vantage point, Will saw a small sleeping area, with a dresser, nightstand, wardrobe, and a queen-sized bed set low to the floor. Bookshelves lined the wall behind the sleeping area, all of them stuffed to overflowing. Continuing counterclockwise around the room, Will saw a small bathroom, a kitchen area with an island prep counter, and a square wooden dinner table big enough to seat four people. The remaining space between the dining area and the railing was filled with row upon row of metal filing cabinets. At the far end of the railing, a staircase ran down the wall to the warehouse floor below. On the right side of the loft, nearest the spot where Will stood, there was a broad workshop area, with a wide variety of tools for working on mechanical and electronic systems. Beyond the workshop, a large gun safe and an emergency exit door filled the remaining space next to the lift door. Callie went to the top of the stairs and called down into the server room. Silas! The sonorous voice came back from somewhere underneath them, sounding annoyed. I'm coming, girl. Hold your horses. This was followed a moment later by the sound of a rack sliding into place and the closing of a metal door. Then a set of odd, thudding footsteps began moving toward the stairs. Curious, Will leaned out over the railing and looked down. The man who walked into view was short, maybe a 160 centimeters at most, with a slender, wiry build. His skin was a deep, rich brown, with darker age spots scattered along his hands and cheeks. His short, tightly curled hair was nearly all white, though a few strands of black still peppered it throughout. He walked slowly and carefully, and as Will looked more closely, he saw why. The man's left leg was a bionic replacement, chrome-plated steel and carbon fiber composite from the knee down. The leg seemed remarkably well-articulated, with far more control than a simple prosthesis, but it looked terribly heavy and landed with a loud thud at every step. Hi, Silas, Callie said, beaming down at him. How's the weather treating you? Silas scoffed. Autumn can't get here fast enough. There isn't an air conditioner on the planet that can keep this place comfortable in a metamorph summer. Callie had descended the stairs now and gently took Silas's left arm as he gripped the railing in his right. Now see here, I can move just fine, Silas grumbled. But he did not pull his arm away from Callie, and he seemed to get up the stairs more quickly with her help. Once they reached the top, Silas went over to the workstation, typed in a few commands, and nodded to himself. That's got it, he murmured. Only then did he turn his attention to Will. His dark brown eyes scanned up and down Will's slender frame, then narrowed as they settled on his face. So, you're the boyfriend. Will bowed. J. William Carenson, sir. It's an honor to meet you. What's the J stand for? Silas asked. Will couldn't help smiling. Callie had asked the same question on the night they first met. James, my father. I go by Will. Silas grunted. You a student, Will? Will stood up a bit straighter. Yes, sir. I'm a junior at Empire U. Silas shook his head, as if in despair. Waste of money. You never learn anything useful until you get your hands dirty. He hooked a thumb over his shoulder at Callie. That's what I told this one when I made her my apprentice. You do the work and you'll understand the work. That's what I said. Will nodded solemnly. That's what I'm trying to do, sir. Good. Good. Silas nodded to him once then turned away from the workstation and started shuffling toward the kitchen area. Callie had started a pot of water to boil and was inspecting Silas's tea supply. Silas and Callie chatted about inconsequentials for a while. Minor health complaints, Callie's cat slippers, upgrades Silas had made or was planning to make on the server farm. As promised, Callie told Silas the story of how she had met Will and the adventures they'd had afterward. Will sat back and watched them paying more attention to their expressions, tone, and body language than the words they used. Silas brought out a side of Callie that Will hadn't seen before. She was calm, gentle, and even doting toward him, accepting his grumbling complaints and occasionally sharp-tongued criticisms without a word of retort. It reminded Will of the way his family had treated his great-grandfather in those last years before he died. Grandpa is who he is, Will's mother would say, When someone gets to be that age, you've got to learn to love him for his faults, not just in spite of them. There was no doubt. The look Will saw in Callie's eyes was love. And it was there in Silas, too, in the little smile that played around the corners of his mouth when he thought Callie wasn't looking. So, tell me, Silas said, after they'd finished their first cup of tea and Callie was pouring the second, what brings you to my end of town, Will? You're no street rat. No, sir, Will said. I'm gathering some deep background for a book I'm writing. Silas looked sharply at Callie. A reporter? You brought a damned reporter in here, Callie? I'm not a reporter, Will said quickly. I'm a novelist. I just want to understand the world I'm writing about, that's all. Then write your own story, boy, Silas growled. He pointed a finger at his overflowing bookshelves. You've seen I'm a reader myself. I've got the works of over 500 masters in there. Great men and women from five continents and two thousand years of history. Do you think we remember their stories because they stole them from somebody else? Will looked down at his hands, blushing. "I, I don't mean to steal anything, sir. I just... I want to help. Silas glared at Will in silence for a long moment. Then he let out a low, tired sigh. I believe you mean that, he said. Problem is, every few years or so, some damned fool Skywalker comes along saying he wants to help the street rats. They come down here and get their pictures taken at the shelters or the soup kitchens or the factories. They talk a lot of mess about reform and fairness and justice. He chuckled once. It wasn't a happy sound. (laughs) Sometimes they even get elected. Then they head back up to their skyways, and you know what happens? Nothing. Because there's a few dozen families up topside with fancy names that go back a thousand years, and they like things just the way they are. Conservative, centrist, progressive. Down here it doesn't make much difference. They're the ones with the power, and that's the way they mean to keep it. What happens down here just doesn't matter. He spread his hands, as if encompassing the whole sad problem. Will nodded slowly. I can't fix our politics. I know that. But I feel like I have to do something. When I started to learn how things are down here, I couldn't just turn away. He shrugged. I'm not a politician, or a police officer, or a judge. I'm a writer. My words are my tools. They can make people feel. They can make people care. Will shook his head. Maybe not everyone, but some maybe enough to make a difference. Silas looked at him closely. Will could feel the man weighing him, judging him, measuring him in a thousand ways that Will could only guess at. At last, Silas gave him one slow nod. Then let me offer you some advice, writer, Silas said gravely. Don't leave yourself out of the story. You want to help? Help. Get down here in the dirt. Feed the hungry. Take care of the sick. Comfort the lonely. Not because it'll make for a good story, not because some god tells you to do it, but because they're goddamn sentient beings who are suffering more than anybody should have to. You don't need to be a politician or a cop or a judge to do that. You just need to have a soul. He pointed a finger at Will. You do the work, and you'll understand the work. You want to be the next Jonathan Three Rivers boy? you can have to earn it Will felt tears welling up in his eyes, overwhelmed by the sudden passion in the old man's speech. He wiped at his face and nodded. "I understand, sir. Where would you recommend I go to help? Where do they need it the most?" Silas tapped his lips for a moment, clearly thinking hard. "Let me do a data dive for you. I should be able to find you some places to be of use." He pushed himself to his feet, then made his careful way over to the workstation. Callie reached over and squeezed Will's hand. He turned to look at her, and she smiled. Not her usual wry grin, but a quiet, knowing smile. You did good, she murmured. He likes you. Then her lip twisted up at the corner, and her eyes sparkled with mischief. Don't screw it up. Will sniffed back his tears again and laughed. I'll do my best. And that was Chapter 7 of The Lost in the Least. I hope you guys enjoyed this sneak peek. Watch for the completed novel coming later this year. Walter Mosley said, The job of the writer is to take a close and uncomfortable look at the world they inhabit, the world we all inhabit and the job of the novel is to make the corpse stink. So, put on your nitrile gloves, smear some menthol jelly under your nose, and follow me to the weekly writing report. This was not a productive week on the writing front. I only wrote on three out of the seven days, for a total of 1,333 words over 2.25 hours, averaging 592 words per hour. There were a number of reasons for this, but the biggest one is I had some long days at work and I needed to catch up on my sleep. I worked a bit more on Operation Ibex, my new Artech story, which is now up to 3300 words. I also put in a few hours this week on the audio files for Divine Intervention. I'd like to get this book finished in the next week, so I can hopefully have it available on Audible in time for Balticon. Over on the YouTube channel, I have another interview available. Last week, I interviewed Abigail Hilton about her latest novel, which is called Jager Thunder. I was one of the beta readers on this book, and I've got to tell you, it's wonderful. I'll have links in the show notes to watch the interview and to order your copy of the book on Amazon. I also strongly encourage you to become a patron of Abby's Patreon campaign. $3 a month will get you access to her patrons-only podcast, which includes the audiobook versions of her stories as she's releasing them. That's at patreon.com slash Abigail Hilton. And if you want to support my campaign, that's at patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. Even a small monthly contribution makes a big difference. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900. Then enter extension 255-082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash lester. The fan group is fans of Metamorph City on Facebook. And my Twitter handle is ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review on iTunes. It makes a big difference in helping people find the podcast. That's our show for this week. I'll be back next time to start another year of writing goodness. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2017 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, so don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.